Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I don't have any comments because you didn't send any. So please, if you really love this program, send some comments. I ended last week's program with some facts about George Washington's health. Now, he may have been one of our sickliest presidents, but I think we also have to understand that most of the men of his time were sickly. I mean, they they really did have to fight disease. And even at his death, they really believed that the reason he died is because the doctor bled him three times. That was the inside medical thing to do at that time. And they finally realized that doesn't work. But anyway, I just wanted to just share with you how Johnson viewed George Washington and how he looked to the people of his day. Now, this is what Johnson says on page 33. It says, the word majestic was often used about him, notably by the architect Benjamin Latrobe. And this is a quote from Latrobe. He had something uncommonly majestic and commanding in his walk, his address, his figure, and his countenance. He did not speak at any time with remarkable fluency. Perhaps the extreme correctness of his language, which almost seemed studied, prevented that effect. So, so Washington, he was majestic. He was, you know, obviously very handsome. He had a powerful command just in his person. Uh, Johnson goes on to say, Washington impressed men and women most equally. Having defeated the French, the war in Virginia was virtually over by 1758. He was ready to become a farmer in earnest and take up his duties as a vestryman, justice of peace, and burgess. All this and his need for cash and property to develop his inherited estates pointed to a prudent marriage, and Washington had made one. Martha Dandridge was a rich widow. Her husband, Daniel Park Curtis, had died in 1757, leaving her 18,000 acres of land, property worth 40,000 pounds, and two small children. Now, she was nine months older than Washington, and by and tiny by comparison, she was four feet eleven, and he was over six feet tall. So, I, when reading that, I thought, you know, we need to do some things with Martha. We need to talk about Martha. So, for today's program, I want to begin several programs about the first first lady of the United States of America, and that is Martha Washington. Her history is really nothing short of fascinating. And what I would like to do is I'd like to recommend a book for you to read titled Martha Washington, An American Life by Patricia Brady. Now, I've, I have purchased this book. I've been reading it. It is really just, just really well-written. It's, it's uh, very historical. It's really been well-researched. And uh, you can find this book at Amazon, or if you uh, don't want to purchase it for yourself, you could certainly find it or check into your local library to see if they have a copy. Now, to help me introduce Martha, I have invited my wife, Deborah, to be in the studio with me today. So, welcome, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Well, it's about time you get back to work. <laughs> anyway, just kidding. 
but I also want to announce that the 60-plus panel will be back in full strength for our discussion on Hero, which is the biography of Lawrence of Arabia. Now, here's our new member. His name is James Brandon, and he has been on the program before. But he is a literature instructor at Imperial Academy, and he will be joining our panel. Now, the one thing I want to say right up front, he is not in his 60s. (laughs) So maybe we'll have to call the panel the 60 plus one panel, (laughs) because there's only two of us that are 60 and over. But anyway, he's really excited. He'll be coming on with us when we talk about Hero, and then he will be with us until, uh, well, whenever. And hopefully it's for a long time. All right. So, Deborah, since you're here and now you're working again, I thought we should begin today by talking about the life uh, of the Virginia colony. And uh, let's let's talk about the, the life, let's say, in the Virginia colony, especially as it influenced Martha's life. And, um, of course, we both have, have read this. And uh, we know that it was tough. It was a hard life. So, so I've said enough already. Let's let's hear. Let's hear from you. Okay. Well, well, it is one thing about this book is interesting. Is she does, she really paints a picture of the time period and has lots of facts. And I think some of the facts she she, um, the the author uh, Patricia Brady got from people um, ordering. Um, ordering things from other, you know, from England or from, you know, just different documents that she put together. But so I just think that's interesting. Uh, But it, it definitely was a time where people had to band together and um, the, the social classes weren't as distinct. What I thought was interesting because they really, everybody needed each other because there was, there was uh, so many dangers um, just from really being on a, on a frontier in in a lot of, there in, in uh, Virginia. So, um, but the Virginia planters had a lot of um, they they mostly were landed gentry from England, and they and they worked to be that way to be uh, genteel. They call themselves genteel, and they were pl- they called themselves planters, and they planned the land, and um, so they had a certain uh, quality of life that they aspired to, but then they had to deal with with. Um, you know, the, with disease and death and things like that. Yeah, let, let me just read a quote for you. This is um, from page 14 of of uh, Patricia Brady's book. And, uh, you know, she's talking about, um, you know, the the colony. And, and here's, how, here's a paragraph that she uses to describe what it was like in the Virginia colony. Of course, we know about Jamestown was the, the first very first uh, established city in the Virginia colony. We know what trouble they had to go through. But here's what she says. Starvation, disease, hostile Indians, and years of financial losses. For its first 20 or 30 years, the little colony planted in 1607 at Jamestown teetered on the edge of extinction. And and I think, uh, you know, sometimes uh, maybe we we don't realize how tough life was for these original English settlers. It says, The vagaries of European fashion turned Virginia's future as golden as the mines of Spain's Latin American colonies. Almost overnight, tobacco became all the rage, whether smoked in pipes or daily inhaled as snuff, and Virginia land seemed predestined for its cultivation. 
to most of the world, tobacco and Virginia became synonymous. And so, so you can see that but by the time we really get with uh, maybe to the to the time of Martha and George Washington, a lot of the the really rough times were over, but still it, it was a long time coming. And then to me, it's it's you know with all of our knowledge today about tobacco and cigarettes and all the programs that get people off smoking, I, I do think it's very interesting that that that's how the, these English settlers they came to Virginia to grow wealthy. Growing tobacco, yes. <laughs> and it's like I know that uh, you know my father-in-law was really against smoking, and uh, but just to think about how how uh, you know your dad would have thought. Well, uh, we never talked about the Jamestown colony with him, but but I know he he would uh, he would not have liked the whole idea behind the the tobacco. But let me just read one other just quick thing from the book. And, uh, of course, we're going to talk some more about this in a few minutes. But, uh, but Martha Washington, as, as uh, Patricia Brady says, she was a true child of the colony. She was at least fourth-generation Virginian on her mother's side. For more than 100 years, her maternal ancestors had been respected landowning gentry, but they were not grandees with uncounted acres. They lived in a web of relationships based on marriage, kinship, business, and neighborhood. Without strong community ties, no individual could have survived the rigors of early colonial life. And then they're talking about Martha here. Uh, Her nickname was Patsy, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a few minutes. But Patsy Dandridge was part and parcel of English Virginia and the world of its tobacco planters. And so so one of the things that that we even want to say about about George and Martha and uh, the Overall, this series is about, you know, British biography. We are really talking about British people. And, you know, George considered himself, you know, a child of England. He still considered himself English. And uh, uh, here Patsy or Martha Washington would have also considered herself very English. And so so those are our roots in this country. But it, but uh, I think there's some interesting week, stories that we can talk about her family. But go ahead, dear. I, I'll let you go ahead and continue there. Well, ju- just that that um, it is it it is interesting about the tobacco that 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 it really did get very wealthy from with the plantations, and um, that that um, they started out with with. Um, indentured servants and then eventually went to slaves right. and so what the, the world that, that Martha or Patsy grew up in that was her world uh, where there were there were slaves that was just life and right and um, you know um, but and then she she really did grow into um, wealth because of the land because her parent her family had been there for so long right we'll, we'll talk some more mm-hmm. about that but the, I, I, one of the things I think is really really interesting is that that we uh, we somehow forget that even let's say when her husband becomes president of the United States for the first time the the capital was in New York and one of the I think one of the most interesting things in Patricia Brady's book is the whole introduction where it talks about her George obviously uh you know they they were very close and he needed his wife near him but the whole trip that she had to make from uh, Virginia to New York at that time. I mean, right now you could get in a car and just drive it in hours, 
it took like four or five days to get there. And they were stopping along the way at friends and plantations and having little parties as they went. So, so, but, but anyway, I, I think it's interesting that in the time that she lived in, the Virginia colony was still dangerous. It was a dangerous environment. They had these dark forests. There were wolves. I mean, there there wolves that could uh, go after their you know their cattle, or their sheep, or whatever they were growing. Now it doesn't seem like the Virginians had many animals. It seems like it was tobacco all it the does way. Does sound that way? At yeah. Least from this, yes. But but I think it's really interesting, and I want to I want to turn over there. Um, you know, there's there's a lot that we don't know about. Uh, let's say Martha's family, and it's because the the uh, the the colony had so much of a struggle, and they lost records, and they lost even like graveyards. They 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 lost things to fires, but there is there is something about her grandfather, or actually her great grandfather, and I'm going to read a, a section out of the book just to uh, just to you know get you up to speed on what this is like to read this book. Uh, this is uh, Brady goes. It says, no one knows exactly when or under what circumstances Martha Dandridge's maternal forebears came from England to try their luck in Virginia. In 1664, her great-grandfather, William Woodward, first appeared in the documentary record. That summer, Queen Kaka Koeska, leader of the Pemunkeys, I guess that's how you say it, sold him 2,100 acres of river land in the new county. So, so obviously, another part of their life is they, they're, the, the family was used to dealing with Indians or trading with Indians. And here, a great-grandfather bought a large, uh, I mean, to me, 2,100 acres is a lot of acreage. So, so they definitely wanted land. They knew land was important. It says, in a petition to the governor's council, she declared her desire to have him as a neighbor and translator for herself and her people. It says, uh, family lore holds that Woodard had moved out to that howling wilderness, they called it, sometime in the 1650s as an Indian trader. To English calling this, the great forests were alien and frightening places where not only the wind and the wolves howled, but the native inhabitants as well. In their eyes, trees were to be chopped down, wolves to be killed, and Indians civilized, beginning with learning the English language and giving up their own foul noise. And that's written in Old English in in the book, so it's really kind of humorous. But listen to this. Woodward must have been an unusual Englishman, for he learned the Pamunkey's language and gained their confidence. So very unusual was this linguistic skill that he was always identified as William Woodard, the Indian interpreter. Now, although not a colonial official, he was employed for specific negotiations between the Indians and the governor. So I think that's that says a lot about the family she came from. And, uh, you know, uh, I think some of the settlers, when they came in, they looked at Indians just as savages. But here, her great-grandfather uh, learned their language and was an interpreter for them so that he, that they could kind of build a bridge between the English and the Indians. So so I think that kind of shows um the uh the kind of situation that that uh or the kind of family that she would have been in. And it just seems like 
um, you know, she and she and George both came from families that were very accommodating and willing to serve other people. Yes, yes, that's really true. I mean, later on when we talk about them when they're married, um, they definitely were very sociable people. Yes, and, yes, and she was she was trained to to help the needy. Right. Yes. Right. One other thing I think it's interesting too. Let's let's just talk about um, the colony. They they say it took brute survival <laughs> to survive, and of course you know the the men, the Englishmen that came over. You know they they were uh, they were all you know wanting the challenge, wanting the challenge to knock down trees, wanting the challenge to to uh, well fight the Indians, and it's the women. That that really had to work hard at survival, and uh, you know they they really did leave English civilization to come to to a really hostile environment. But here's what she says in the very middle of this page. This is page sixteen, and she's talking about uh, Martha Washington's great grandmother. And the thing is, they know who the father is. They they know his name, but they don't even know what her name was. Here's what what Brady says. It says, even the name of Martha Dandridge's great-grandmother, the woman who married William Woodard, is unknown, as are those of so many colonial matriarchs. The 17th century was was concerned with brute survival and the acquisition and protection of wealth. Men owned land, held office, and fought wars. Many of their names survive in the documents somewhere. Not so with women. Nearly 400 years of indifference, fires, floods, and vanished burial plots mean that a goodly percentage of Virginia's foremothers are unknown. And so, so if you didn't end up in a uh, an official record that was saved from a fire, people didn't even know you existed. And so, so it seems like a lot of the the uh, the moms or the the founding mothers of Virginia, it, it just seemed like. Uh, you know, we just have lost records of them, and so so I thought that was uh, that was really you know quite interesting. But um, uh, I think there's one other thing that um, that they talk about, and that's that's like Jamestown, the first city, and uh, on page 18 of her book, she talks about it how it was continually destroyed by fire. It was not in the best land; it was a marshy land. And uh, eventually, the capital had to be moved to Williamsburg. And so, so I I know that we have been through Williamsburg. I don't think we've ever had any time to stay there. But after reading her book, I want to go to Jamestown now. <laughs> I want to go see all see all this. So, do you have any other anything else you wanted to say there, or do you want to move on? Well, uh, you want uh, about the family. I we uh, can move on to the okay, family. Okay, the family. Okay. okay. So let's start talking about Martha's family. So the the th- the thing is is um, we just have to remember that her family, uh, by the time she was born, they had been they they had at least been in the Virginia colony for about four hundred years. Right. So so that's really kind of interesting. So so she does have uh, a long family history, but she probably didn't even know know a lot about it. So um, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is that the. The name for nickname for Martha was Patsy. Yes, <laughs> I know. I, you, know you hear about Margaret, and, the, and Peggy is a nickname for Margaret, but I've never heard of Patsy for for uh, Martha. Yeah, yes. and I never knew that Polly was a nickname for Mary. No, no, that's it's definitely something from that time period. Yeah. Yes. 
Here, here's here's what uh, what Brady says, and I, I do think this is kind of fascinating. And, and this is this is still talking about the the family as a whole in the terms of their names and how aggravating it was. So, so this is what Brady says: the pool of customary names among English settlers was small. And the desire to honor family members great. Names were repeated in each generation. And two or three cousins often bore identical names without a middle name to distinguish them. All those Marys, Elizabeths, Marthas, Anns, Francises, Williams, Georges, Thomases, Roberts, Johns, and Daniels make for endless confusion. As one of the early editors of George Washington's papers put it, to name generation after generation the same is an evil habit, <laughs> and one the Dandridges indulged in repeatedly. <laughs> and so, so I guess that's why they came up with the nicknames, because you could have a great grandmother named Mar- Martha, you could have a grandmother named Martha, your mother could be named Martha, you could have cousins named Martha. So if you're going to distinguish between them, you've got to give them pet names. And so I don't I don't see how you get from M and Margaret to Patsy. I know. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, that's obviously an English thing. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about her own mother now. Okay, her own Fanny. Her own mother was was Fanny and she she had a kind of a difficult time in that um she would I believe she was her parents died, is that right? Right. Yeah, so both, she both died, and she had a brother, Fanny. The two of them were orphans, um, were orphans and right. they went. They had to live with a stepmother because her father, sorry, her mother died, lived with her father, but then the stepmother... Um, father eventually died as well. father died, that's right. The right. Step, stepmother was supposed to take care of them, but she didn't do very... No, because she very remarried well. another... Yes. It's it's uh, the whole... The whole idea today, you know, there's there's uh, problems out there called blended families. Well, in the colony, you would have had the same thing because so many people were dying of so many illnesses. It was really common then. Uh, reading, yeah. reading this, that's what I didn't realize was that for most people had more than one marriage because most people were married at least two times because because someone died, you know. Right. So so there were many widows and widowers. And normally the widow or a widower would get married again. So, Right. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at the, the general lifestyle of Virginia, if they were planters and they obviously needed children to help work on the plantations, so, so you needed to have a wife to have children. But then if you were working in the planters and your wife died, you couldn't do the planting and take care of the children at the same time. So it was almost a necessity that you get married again. And, of course, then they had more children. Yes. And so that happened in George Washington's family. Remember, he's, his mother was the second wife of his father, and he's the oldest child of that marriage. Mm-hmm. But he had older brothers from the previous marriage or half-brothers. So, so go ahead. Let's t- talk more about Fanny. I, I, think, uh, I think her uh, – if you read the story um, – her mother Fanny and her brother, they actually had to sue, or they had to legally separate themselves from their stepmother, and so that they could move on with their lives. And so, because they they actually carried some wealth with them. Yes, and, and the, the stepmother was was <laughs> taking advantage of the wealth. Right. Yeah. So. And there, and then it's, and then it, 
it says right here, no one knows where Fanny Jones went to live in 1726. So she she was able to get away, but then they don't really know where she went. Then eventually she married William Dandridge. Um, but but so she was an heiress in her own right. Right. Um, yes. So, so so anyway, I I think that as uh, then we get into more about um, Martha, I think that's where she gets her spirit of. Uh, you know, she she doesn't seem, uh, even though she was small, she still doesn't seem like she was a pushover. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. But next time, the 60-plus panel will continue our discussion of Martha Washington. Now, um, if you have not read Johnson's book, there's still time for you to read it. And remember, our third and final book in this series is Hero, the Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia. Remember now, you can find both books on Amazon. You can find used copies of the books at abebooks.com. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. And remember, you can leave me a comment at Facebook. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.